Joshua chapter 7. We'll be reading the whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but it is not a dull chapter. Let's pray that as we read, the Spirit would be with us. Heavenly Father, we are sinners. We are natural people on our own. We need your help. So as we look at these words of truth in Joshua 7, would you open our eyes to see that you speak? To see that we are sinners in need of grace and that Jesus has paid it all that we might live. It's in him we pray by the Spirit. Amen. Hear God's very words from Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bet-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. 
So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Thus ends the reading of this portion of God's word. Thanks be to God. As Americans, we read this passage and are appalled. What is this Eighth Amendment violation? Cruel and unusual punishments, we say. If you were to think about the heinousness of a sin that deserves cruel punishment, what kinds of things come to mind? Often we think of sins that kill, sins against children and the vulnerable, sins against a great number of people. Often it seems that our scale for how bad a sin is depends on who it's done against. But I would guess that you would hardly find a list of the worst sins in our culture today that would include a sin against God. A sin like blasphemy, apostasy, false teachings, wicked inventions, of the mind. Yet, isn't it the sins against God himself that are to be considered the most severe? Yes, of course, all sins are against God, but when you measure the severity of a sin based on who it's against, there is no greater offense than a sin against God. Sin is dangerous. Part of our problem is that we have downplayed the severity of sin. It is a cancer, and we call it a cold. Sin against God is very dangerous. Our passage today shows us how important it is to God. How important it is to God that his people remove the sin within. 
We're looking at the danger of the sin within this morning. First, we're going to look at God's burning wrath. And then we're going to look at his patient clarity. And then we're going to look at his wrath turned away. His burning wrath, his patient clarity, and his wrath turned away. Looking at God's burning wrath, this passage opens the first five verses with a description of God's wrath. And it closes in the final verses with the description of God's wrath. This is a type of sandwich that builds right to the middle to verse 12. You notice verse 1. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. That's how this passage opens. And then you look at the very last verse. It says, therefore... Excuse me, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. The passage opens with his anger burning and it closes with his anger turning away. And so everything in between is related to his wrath and his anger and their sin. And God's wrath in the Bible is not a light thing. God's wrath is stirred by disobedience among his people and the nations, by worshiping other gods, by dealing frivolously with God's presence, by complaining against God's provision. It's described often with language of fire and of burning and of kindling. And even it's called, it says that it blazed hotly in Numbers 11. His fire consumes his foes all around. His wrath looked like the curses of the book of the law. It caused the people of Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It caused them to to face pestilence and disease. And it caused them later to be exiled from this land. Caused them destruction and more. And if anybody were to say that there's a disconnect and that's the God of the Old Testament, that's not the God of the New Testament. Instead of telling you that the God of the Old Testament is compassionate, he is. But I'm going to actually tell you the more negative news. The God of the New Testament is also wrathful. Hebrews 10 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The Israelites knew that the wrath of God serious. And so we see their hearts melted like water. They saw the judgment of God coming against them. And this description of hearts melting, you may remember, we've heard it already in this book, but who was it whose hearts were melting? It was actually the nations. It was those outside Israel. Rahab said, you know, we've heard of what the Lord has done for you, crossing the Red Sea, and our hearts melted. And then the kings of the Amorites in chapter 5 also, their hearts melted when they heard what the Lord has done for Israel. But now the God of heaven and earth is set against Israel. Their hearts are melting like water. The judgment against the nations has now come against Israel herself. And it's come this time in that defeat at Ai. There was such great rejoicing and victory. They just defeated Jericho. God just fought for them. And here immediately they go to the next enemy who doesn't seem to be that big a deal. And the Lord brings judgment upon them in his wrath. 
verses 2 through 5, describe that. Joshua sent out spies once again, and they went up and spied out Ai, and they returned, and they said, we don't need everybody to go up. We're just a couple thousand. Just in a couple battalions. No big deal. Don't make the whole people go up there because they're few. So about 3,000 men went up, verse 4, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. Shebarim means stone quarry. It's a bit of a graphic scene. These men running away down into the stone quarry, and it says, and they struck them at the descent into the quarry, and the hearts of the people melted. We see God's wrath burning against Israel here. But again, with that sandwich that's going on in this passage, God's wrath also burns against Achan at the end. And we'll return to that in more detail shortly. But we need to realize that the anger of the Lord burns against all wickedness, whether it's outside or inside. The people of Israel are facing God's wrath. The people outside Israel are facing God's wrath. And God is doing this within Israel. In fact... For good. He's doing it because he's just, because he is holy. He's doing it for the good even of Israel, for the preservation of his church, because we're told that a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough makes the whole thing rise. A little bit of sin in the people causes the destruction of everyone. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul commands that the church remove the immoral believer from among them for the sin that is corrupting and infecting and killing the church. That their soul might be saved and so that the church might be purified. Protect the church. And that is exactly what God is doing here in Joshua 7. That's God's wrath. Let's look at God's patient clarity. God's patient clarity. Joshua sees this defeat. He sees the wrath of God being poured out against him, and he doesn't know what to do. So in verse 6, he tears his clothes, and he fell onto the, the earth with his face before the ark of the Lord. And he asked the Lord, why have you brought us into this situation? Now, some people say, it was a poor war strategy that led Israel to be defeated here. They shouldn't have just taken two or 3,000 men. They should have taken everybody and they would have won. Well, you and I know very well that the Lord doesn't need a full battalion to win. With Gideon, he used 300 and defeated a massive army. He defeated 185,000 Assyrians. And the people of Israel didn't raise a single weapon in the defeat of Jericho. So in fact, what the Lord is doing here, the Lord is using little I to defeat big Israel in judgment. And so no matter the war strategy, that wouldn't have changed the outcome. And so Joshua and the elders come to God pleading, saying, what has brought this upon us? What is wrong? And so to tear their clothes is a sign of mourning. It's, it's a sign of deep distress and of grief. It was often accompanied by placing dirt or ashes on your head. And indeed, we see that here. They put dust on their heads as a sign of being brought low. They are broken. And they're wondering, God, have you forsaken us now? Are we going to become like Jericho? Are we going to be no more? Are we going to be wiped off the face of the earth? And will we become a heap 
of rubble, a memorial forever of your holiness. You know, it's really interesting. Only in verse 6 do we see the first mention of the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember at Jericho, how many times was the Ark mentioned? It was so many times. It was ten times in the battle against Jericho. And it's mentioned multiple times in the crossing of the Jordan. Yet the Ark, the presence of God, did not go with Israel against Ai. He has not gone with them to bless them or to give them victory, but to judge them with his wrath. And so they're wondering, would it have just been better for us to stay on the other side of the Jordan? They're questioning whether God's plans are going to come to the completion. Because hadn't God promised in Joshua 3 that he will drive out the people of the land from before them? Has he backed out of his promise? And Joshua's prayer here sounds a little bit like the Israelites in the wilderness. Oh, if we could just go back to Egypt. And Joshua says, would that we have been content to just stay in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan? But there's a difference. Joshua is coming in prayer to the Lord by faith. The Israelites were faithless in the wanderings. He is praying to God. He's not complaining about God behind God's back. He is praying to God, and even in his cry of confusion here, he does so in faith before God's presence, before the ark, with his face toward the ark, seeking God. So his prayer here really serves for us an example of a good prayer. In the midst of brokenness, his focus is where it should be. His focus is on the glory of the name of God. He says, what will you do for your great name? If Israel's going to come into the land under the name of Yahweh and be obliterated, what does that say about Yahweh? Joshua's worried about this. He cares deeply about the Lord's kingdom. His prayers care less for his own preservation than for the establishment of God's kingdom in this land of promise. This reveals that Joshua's heart is about the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. And so, God speaks with patient clarity what the problem is. Now, you and I as readers already know because we read the first couple of verses what's gone on. Here in the narrative, Joshua is finding out here what has happened. He identifies the problem in verses 10 through 12. He calls Joshua to action. He says, get up. He tells them the problem. Israel has sinned. They've transgressed the covenant. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Joshua is just figuring out that the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And Joshua is about to find out what verse 1 also tells us, that it was Achan. It was Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. He's described that way twice. To identify, first of all, here's the offender. Second of all, this is the exact same one who was punished. What it also does with this detail, every Israelite would have known Achan. And if they did not know Achan, they knew Carmi, or Zabdi, or Zerah, because they are family. This hits close to home. This is the sin of someone near to them. And God identifies what this sin deserves in verse 12. He says, because of this sin, you're not going to stand in front of your enemies. You will be defeated. You will continue to turn your back on your conquerors and they will chase you and they will defeat you because you have sinned. 
they themselves have become devoted for destruction. Their elimination would be to the glory of God's name and the purification of his land if they lived in this wickedness without repentance. The curse of the plunder that was supposed to be devoted to destruction. They were supposed to keep nothing, yet Achan saw it and took it because he coveted. That plunder and its curse became his curse. He has become like his idol. The leaven has leavened the whole lump, and his self-worship has turned into self-destruction. And the worst of the judgment for Israel comes in verse 12 when God says, I will be with you no more. Do you remember in the book so far how many times God has promised that he will be with them? And how crucial it is that he is with them in battle. And as they go in to take the land, it must be about the Lord's presence among them. And he says, I will be with you no more. This is the end if something is not done. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 and 9 and 17, God talks about being with Joshua just as he was with Moses. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. Same thing in Joshua 3, twice. Same thing with the ark that is among the people as they cross the Jordan River 17 times in that passage and 10 times as they go against Jericho. The Lord is with them and with them and with them and with them. And now he says, I will not be with you. His presence is taken from them. What will they do? They will become nothing. And I have to pause for a minute and think, is that the worst threat in my life? Do I understand that the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is that God would take his presence from me? David in his sin cried out, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That would be his end. If, if God said he is no longer with Christ Presbyterian Church, what would we say? Oh, well, at least we have nice people. Or, yeah, that's not great. Maybe we'll just go down to the Unitarian Church. Maybe we can go somewhere where there's a little bit of a more tolerant so-called God. No, I begin to shake with fear at the thought that God would abandon us. What would we do? Who would we be? Where's our source of life? Where's our purpose? Truly, we would be destroyed by our enemy, Satan, if God were not with us. But we praise him that he does have, he has placed his spirit among us and he preserves us and purifies us and defends us and comforts us and grows us in the fruit of the spirit. I want to note that in verse 12, God says, I will be with you no more. But in the same breath, what does he say? Unless. What kind of patience does God have that he's going to provide an unless clause here? What kind of grace is this? This is what they deserve. This is what sin ought to be met with is utter destruction. And he says, unless. He's giving them another chance. In the same breath, he says, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. That's grace. That's mercy. And allowing them once again to obey. But in this, we also see 
danger of sin that is within us. We must remove that sin inside of us. The extent to which God is seeking to purify his people, he's not looking to get you 99% pure. His pursuit of holiness for you is completeness. Our hatred of sin should outweigh all the lures of the world's trinkets. We should seek to destroy the devoted things from among us and to keep our hearts from coveting them. Do we hate sin? Or do we buddy up with it and excuse it? Why does God give another chance? Why does he give this unless clause? It's because of his mercy, because of his covenant, and he does it for his great name. So let's look at God's wrath turned away in verses 13 through 26. We've looked at his wrath and its severity. We've looked at his patient clarity. And what has he said they need to do? Eradicate the sin. And now his wrath will be turned away as the people once again obey. After God tells them that they must remove the devoted things, his second instruction for Joshua is, get up, consecrate the people. This consecration, we we don't get details here about what this means, but we do get enough details to know that Joshua obeyed immediately and rapidly and with diligence. God said, go consecrate the people. And he got up early in the morning and he consecrated the people. Purge the sin. He, he gets the weight of this. He knows that the people need to be made pure. And, and this phrase, Joshua rose early in the morning, it, it's already come up four times in this book, and it's always about active obedience. It's when Joshua prepared Israel to cross the Jordan, when he led them to march around Jericho, and then when he led them to march around Jericho the seventh day. And here, as Joshua leads the people against the wickedness within their own midst. This phrase always indicates diligent, rapid obedience and throughout the Old Testament. Joshua doesn't dilly-dally until evening. He doesn't wait until it's convenient. He prioritizes service to God and obedience to his word as his first item of the day. Nothing else matters. And so he brings the people for examination and the phrase is, you shall be brought near by tribes and clans and household and man by man. This phrase, be brought near, it's a, it's a term that means to come for trial, to come before the judge. It's, uh, it's not coming close for a hug. It's coming close for judgment. And it's used against the people of Israel as they rejected God in 1 Samuel 10 as well. God knew the offender. God knew Achan's heart. And God knew that he must be called out and dragged out. And so Achan was identified. He's not repentant in his heart. He's dragged out to confession. God has already identified what Achan has done, and Achan has thought that maybe somehow he can hide it from God. God has said he has stolen and he has lied. And in Achan's own acknowledgement, he has coveted. He's in violation of the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, the, the tenth one, thou shalt not covet, the eighth one, thou shalt not steal, the ninth one, thou shalt not bear false witness. But with it also, he's violated the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and with it, all the first four, and every commandment in between. Achan has no hope of standing on his own. It was only his being singled out that led him to confess. 
And at that, he gave a very partial, heartless confession. And in it was no remorse for the trouble that he brought upon God's people or God's name. All his confession revealed was how much he loved his treasures. He says, I coveted them. Oh, that cloak was beautiful. And look at all the silver, 200 shekels and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. He seems to continue to enjoy the treasure. It's quite a contrast with Joshua's speech, isn't it? Joshua's prayer before God, where he cares much less for his name and only for the glory of God and God's kingdom. Here, though, Achan only acknowledges the beauty of the world, even when confronted with his sin. Achan's sin received the curse that it deserved. It put his family at risk, and it caused their destruction too. Because his sin, as sin always does, affects more than just the one individual. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He became like the idols he worshipped, devoted to destruction, and he turned his family too into an offering of destruction. And this is exactly what was prescribed in Deuteronomy 13 when the people were to take these things that are banned for destruction. It says, you shall gather all the spoil into the midst of the open square and burn a city that you're taking. And and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. That is what happened to Achan and his small city. That's what happened to Jericho when they burned the city with fire and everything in it. And I take no joy in relating to you the death of a human and a family. But I do thank God for this warning about the severity of sin. And that I get to remind us all, that God's word reminds us all that sin is not a small thing. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Our sins are cosmic treason as we attempt to take God's place as king of our lives. And yet we downplay that. And when we are faced with this, we forget it. Tomorrow, will you remember the severity of sin and the punishment that it deserves and the wrath of God? We need memorials. And so Achan and his family and their destruction served as a memorial, a heap, a heap of rubble. It shows God's faithful holiness and justice. Just like Jericho was never to be rebuilt as a heap of rubble, showing God's faithfulness and judgment. Just like those stones were pulled out of the river to show God's faithfulness to his people. We need the reminders of the danger of that sin that is within us. Every sin deserves to be punished this way. Every sin deserves death with the blood of the offender. Only when the sin was eradicated do we read in verse 26 that the Lord turned from his burning anger. The payment was made. The covenant sin is removed. What was God's was finally given to God's. As an offering, justice rolled down like waters. The severity of the crime was finally met with its equal punishment. 
What if God told you that he was coming back to Israel in that moment? Would you be excited or would you be fearful? God's presence with his people is such a gracious ending to this story. That he would come back to his people with his anger turned away. That he would return to relationship and covenant with his people who deserved to be punished for the sin within them. Yet his anger is no longer burning against them. It's his gracious gift to his covenant people according to his patience and his covenant faithfulness. Are you like Achan? At the core, of course, we can all identify with Achan in that we have sinned against the holy God. We have defamed his name and we've sought our own glory. We have used his conquest against sin to our own worthless, empty, worldly gain. And we've endangered our families and our friends with our sin. But maybe you really see yourself in Achan today in more specific ways. Maybe you too see the treasures of the world and are lured by the beauty of clothing or the value of silver or the prestige of gold. Maybe you too covet in your heart and act on it with your hands. Maybe you too, like Achan saw God at work, maybe you've heard and you've seen the mighty acts of God on behalf of his people and you have immediately forgotten and failed to submit. You stand in awe of his power one moment and are chasing after the lusts of the flesh the next. Maybe you too would try to hide these things from God and and from his people if it meant preserving some kind of comfort for you down the road. Maybe you too have to be called out for your sin because you're not a willing confessor. Maybe you too have tried to dethrone the king, the holy one of Israel, and to think that you know better than he does. Maybe you too deserve all the wrath of your offenses against that powerful holy God. And maybe you too deserve that eternal punishment of hell. Your sin is serious. The danger of the sin within is hard to comprehend. I told you this would not be a warm, fuzzy sermon. I want to give us a little more of a peek into this wrath of God. From that famous Jonathan Edwards sermon, remember, God is seeking to purify his people. God is seeking to prepare his church as a bride to be presented pure and blameless on that last day. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards preached. He said, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true. The judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt is, in the meantime, constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. If God should only 
withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The wrath of God cannot be withstood by you or me, brothers and sisters. What will we do then as fellow Achans when God's wrath is ready to be revealed against our sins? How will you stand up under the judgment you deserve when the stones are thrown at you to kill you justly and the flames engulf you What do you have to stand up with? Any merit, any power, any good works that are good enough? No, the leaven within has leavened the whole lump. The solution is one of worship and surrender and humility. Joshua calls Achan to give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him. Fall down at his feet because he has provided the way for you to endure. The way for you to endure the wrath of God is by being in Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for you. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We can be justified before God. His wrath can be removed from us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus's blood was poured out for your sin. God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus for your sin, and that righteousness and that salvation can be received by faith. Jesus bore the wrath of God for sinners. Jesus became a curse for us, that very curse that we multiply upon ourselves with our covetous hearts and our deeds. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus instead for those who believe in him. He was destroyed so that we who deserve to be destroyed might be saved. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus bore the punishment of Achan for you. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul made an offering for guilt, he saw his offspring. He saw you and me. And out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, God was satisfied. He took God's wrath for you. If you believe in his sacrifice as powerful and sufficient for you, and that he rose victorious from the grave with victory and power over your sins so that you would never have to bear God's wrath for your sin. What an incredible turn. What an amazing gift of grace. But if you don't submit to the Savior, if you continue to hold on to your worldly trinkets, even if you could bring your worldly trinkets to fight against the wrath of God, 
they would do nothing for you. Brothers and sisters, turn to our gracious Savior. Turn to Him. Repent of your sins. Confess your brokenness. Turn toward life. Believe in Jesus. Accept His sacrifice on the cross for your sins. Acknowledge His substitution for you. Receive His righteousness given freely if you just receive and rest upon Him. And if you've been walking with Him for 40 years, return to Him again. Don't let the danger of sin fade in your mind. Repent and believe again today. Repentance and faith is the rhythm of the Christian life every moment, every day. All of us are called by this passage to renew our faith in Jesus and to see what he's done for us so that his mercy and his grace grow and grow until we see nothing but the grace and the glory of God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus who bore God's wrath in your place and the trinkets of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for sparing us. Thank you for what Jesus has done so that we might live and that we might come to you in prayer, that we might stand with access to grace and stand with the hope of resurrection because of Jesus. Would we not belittle our sin, but would we also not belittle the magnitude of your grace? And would we live out of it by your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.